You may have a seat, and while you're sitting, <clears throat> open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. If you're ever interested in studying some of the great biblical prayers, remember the three nines. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9 all contain good long prayers that give us good examples of how the men of God would pray. And we're going to read just a small section of Daniel's prayer, verses 7 through 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord belong, or to the Lord our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. <clears throat> now in this little section of Daniel's prayer, we could pull out two categories, two sections, two parts, that which Daniel ascribes to God and that which Daniel ascribes to men. What does God bring to the table? What does man bring to the table? Men, Daniel here talking about his kinsmen, but I would apply this to all men. Men bring open shame, rebellion, treachery. God brings righteousness, mercy, forgiveness. John writes in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We serve a forgiving God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these simple truths and help us, everyone, to understand them. Stir our hearts with the simplicity and clarity of what you've done for us. God, I pray for even the young ones here that they would be able to understand the doctrine of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would correct our wrong thinking about forgiveness. Show us what it is that we have received from your hand. Holy Spirit, teach us how to give out to others from what we have received from your hand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the confessional language that we're looking at tonight, the next 
little phrase as we study the attributes of God in this first paragraph of the second chapter is this phrase. Speaking of God, it says that He is forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, that would be referred to as the forgiveness of God. Typically, the forgiveness of God is not considered an attribute as much as it is a, a part of the work or doctrine of salvation. But if, as Psalm 27:1 says, if the Lord is our salvation and salvation is of the Lord or belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2, 9, that is, salvation itself flows out of the being of God, then surely we could find some relation of every little aspect of the order of salvation and trace it back to the nature of God, some attribute in God. And surely then forgiveness would have to find its roots deep in the soil of the being and the nature of God. We'll couple that with what we read in Exodus 34, 7, remember Moses asked God, show me your glory. He says, I will proclaim to you my name. And then he begins to exegete his name. And a part of that exegesis is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exactly what our confession says. This, this statement is straight out of the scriptures. Again, that is the way God is explaining who he is to Moses. Forgiving iniquity transgression, and sin. And so while forgiveness is something God does, it's also something God does because of who God is. Now, in the Old Testament, the word to forgive means to carry, to lift, or to take off. In the New Testament, the word that is translated to forgive means to leave, to send away, to release, or to pardon. And I think several weeks ago we, we walked through Psalm 32. And there at the beginning of Psalm 32, the author says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And notice all of these parallels. Transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no Iniquity. These are all parallels. They're all synonymous statements describing this blessed man. His transgressions are forgiven. His sins are covered. His iniquity is not counted against him. It's not held against him. It does not say, blessed is the man whose sin is not considered at all. It doesn't say, blessed is the man whose sins are ignored. It doesn't say, blessed is the man whose sins have been swept away in the sea of forgetfulness. It's not what it says. It says his transgressions are forgiven. His sin is covered. His iniquity is not counted against him. We see sort of the same idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 where Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It is not that God just forgets sins. The fact that God chooses not to remember is not the same as God forgetting. God doesn't forget sins, and He doesn't just sweep them under the rug. He doesn't turn His back and ignore them or pretend that they're not there. And it's not even that He doesn't count trespasses. It's that He doesn't count trespasses against those who are in Christ. And the same 
is displayed in this idea of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not just God saying, well, don't worry about it. So what act does God undertake to make it just? We, we read, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Here, God does not count the trespasses of those who are in Christ against them. How can God be just, acknowledge sin, acknowledge guilt, and then not count it against the sinner? How can he not hold it against the offender? Well, the answer is he forgives it. He carries it. He lifts off the sin and releases the offender. We've all heard those stories of the moms when their kids are trapped under a car and all of a sudden the adrenaline fills them and they pick up the car over their head and they throw it across the road and the child is released. The, the weight is lifted off so that the offender can go free. That's forgiveness. Let me give you a definition. God's forgiveness is the act whereby God removes the guilt of sin from a person so that it may no longer be counted against them. The act whereby God removes the guilt of sin from a person so that it may no longer be counted against them. Now let me describe this, and I'm going to use the mailbox analogy. Hopefully some of y'all have memorized the mailbox analogy, because every time I talk about forgiveness, I use the mailbox analogy. Here's the mailbox analogy. This is how, this is the best way I can come up with to explain forgiveness. You come over to my house for supper, and you stay late into the evening. The sun goes down, and you have to leave, and so you're backing out of my driveway, and you back over my mailbox. I have to have a mailbox. You've backed over my mailbox, and so as the offender, you have just incurred the debt that is my new mailbox. I have to have a mailbox. It's your fault. You backed into it. I need a new mailbox. That debt's on you now, but I come outside and I say, hey, it's no big deal. Go home. I must have a mailbox. Somebody's got to pay for my mailbox, but I told you to go home. So then that debt that was yours, it has to go somewhere. It's now mine to pay. I've got to pay for the mailbox. And so I go and I buy a new mailbox with my own money. Now, that's the illustration. Now, there are several aspects to that illustration. First, there, and, and see, if, see if this begins to make sense. First, there is an act committed by one person against another person. Because of that act committed, there is now a debt owed. The burden of the debt is on the offender. You did it. You got to pay for it. But there's also a debt that is removed, lifted off of the offended party, and therefore the debt's still there. It doesn't disappear. So the offended party has to pay the debt. Removed by the offended party and then absorbed by the offended party. Again, in that scenario, it's not like me saying, look, go home and don't worry about it. I'm not forgetting about it. I'm not sweeping it under the rug. I can't because I have to have a mailbox. I have to get my mail. I don't, I'm not acting like it just doesn't matter. You just go home, forget about it, drive however you want to. You know, it, nothing matters. It's water under the bridge. No, I'm forgiving. I was required to take some action 
And in this case, it's the self-determination. I determine in myself. I'm standing there in my, my house shorts, my house shoes, and I say, you know what? I've decided that I'm just going to lift this debt off of you, let you go. I'll pay for it. Now, if I wanted to get specific, and here's where we get specific in, in the works of God in salvation, it is helpful. That very act of lifting off the debt, removing from you what you owe to me, and then we both walk away under the understanding, I'm not holding anything against you. I'm not going to call you tomorrow and say, hey, so uh, I need a mailbox. I'm, I'm, it's done. And I know that you know that I'm not holding it against you. Me, I'm, hold, I'm lifting that debt off of you. That's forgiveness, that act of lifting off the debt. Now let's apply that to God's forgiveness. Again, the confessional language straight from Exodus 34, God is forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. We confess as Reformed Baptists that our God is a God who is actively forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And those are the acts that we commit against God. We are the offenders. God is the offended party. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity. These words are compiled to prove a point. But we can pull them apart, and they do each carry a little, a little uh, different flavor. They bring different flavors to this dish that is our offense against God. Iniquity is perversity or guilt. Iniquity is the impurity that accompanies our sinfulness. We might consider it a contracted pollution because we're sinners. So picture, if you can, a pack of hyenas, and they have just feasted on a wildebeest in the wilderness, and here they are trotting back across the plain, back to their lair. They're not eating anymore. They're just going home, but their faces all the way up to their eyeballs are covered in blood. And as they breathe, they're panting out. Their air is wafting into the air, the smell of the insides of the intestines of a wildebeest. They're not eating, but that uncleanness is now on them. Everywhere they go until, they, you know, until mama comes and licks it off of them, that's what accompanies their dining etiquette. It's just on them. That's iniquity. It just, it's just a, the pollution. And it's the same way with sinners. We have inherited guilt, and we actually commit sins every day. And so then now we walk around with the, the taint of sin on us and the wickedness of sin on our breath. It's just all over us. Maybe you can picture a smoker. He's not smoking a cigarette, but he might as well be because he smells like a cigarette. All of his clothes smell like cigarettes. His breath smells like cigarettes. His car smells like cigarettes. It's just all over him. That's iniquity. Then there's transgression. Transgression is just rebellion, revolt, to, to break out against God's law. God's law says here is the boundary you may not cross, and we take a step across, and we say, I will cross that boundary. It's the, similar to the idea of trespassing across someone's land. You've gone beyond what God allows. It's sort of positive. You're, you're, you're stepping out against, over and beyond what God has limited. And then there's the word sin. 
Now, sin is often used, all these words are used to, to sum up the entire idea, but spe sin specifically means to fall short of God's standard. That's sort of negative. God sets the standard, here's what you must be, and we fall short all the time. We never attain to it. Here's what we must be, we never attain to it. Here's where we must stop, we always go beyond it. And this is our guilt. We're guilty of all of these things. God sets holy standards of living in a way that will bring honor to Him, and you regularly fail to live up to that standard, not because of inability, but because you willfully choose to settle for a standard that you've determined is adequate. I'll just do this. God establishes personal devotions, family worship, and you find other things to do. Time didn't slip away. God didn't give some people 27 hours and some people 24. Everybody has the same amount of time. It didn't slip away. You make the decision, something is more important to me, a greater priority than my duties before God. He says, do this. You say, I'm not going to do that. That's sin. God's commanded you to do all your labor as unto Christ as Lord. And when you go to work, work as a laborer with Christ as your boss, and yet you choose half-hearted service. It's not like you can't do it. You, you decide you won't. And you assume in that work, God must accept what I bring to Him, even if it's lame and blind, even if it's half-hearted service, God has to accept it. He must take it. You sin against God. God commands prayers and supplications to be made for all people. And you mumble a few mindless sentences just so you can get on with your day. That's sin. God says, here's the standard, and you don't, even, you don't try to get to the standard. You fall short. That's sin. Then there's transgression. We all commit transgressions. God sets limits in various areas on various ways of thinking and various ways of living, and you go beyond the limit, not by accident. You choose to go beyond a willful rejection of His perfect righteousness, thinking my righteousness is probably better. I'll go beyond what God has limited. So God says to put no unclean thing before your eyes, and you say, I will put an unclean thing before my eyes. God sets limits on how we should consider or deal with sleep, and you make it an idol. I will worship my comforter. God sets limits on food, and your God is your belly. He says, you go this far, and you say, I'll go a step further, and God had better not say anything about it, because this is what makes me happy. That's transgression. And again, iniquity. Because of all of these acts, as well as the humanity that you've inherited from Adam, we all carry in our flesh the stench and the contamination and the guilt of sin. And the just desert of our revolt against God is always upon us. We carry it with us like a smoker in his stinking shirt or like a wildebeest with blood dripping off of his face. And these are all evidences of unbelief, disbelief, self-will, self-worship. We underestimate God. That's the offense now, see, God is intent on manifesting His glory 
in all his works. That's his goal. He's working for that, and, and he's not going to stop short of that goal. In all he does, he is working to manifest his glorious attributes and perfections. Holiness is one of them. Justice is another one of them. And so in all of God's works, he's trying to show just how holy he is, just how just he is all of the time. He's making it known, his perfect holiness and perfect justice. So what does it say then when we rebellious creatures just carry on in sin? We just sin. This is what it says. It says, I don't think God's holiness is all that impressive, and it's definitely not worth my imitation. It is to display to all who will see, including the holy angels, as they watch, that you consider your own natural inclinations, the things that come to you the most naturally, the most easily. You're saying that is more lovely than God's holiness. I would rather just go with my passions and feel good than to aspire to exalt God's holiness in myself. It says, I don't consider God's justice very intimidating. And that's a fearful thing. Carrying on in sin is to treat God's justice as if it's a bluff. You encourage, you call somebody's bluff, you carry on your sin, and you say, I'm calling your bluff. It's to act as though God's justice is not a thing to be feared. God is intent on manifesting His holiness and His justice, and your sin is consistent with manifesting your opposing glory. You want to manifest your glory. Here's the picture. You want to manifest your glory. God will manifest His glory. He must take every precaution to ensure that His justice and His holiness is upheld. So what is He going to do? See, God owes it first and foremost to Himself to destroy you. Secondly, he then owes it to you to destroy you so that for all of eternity you learn your lesson not to call his bluff, not to, to balk at his holiness and his justice. That is the offense that you have offended or, you, or brought against God. The secondly, there is then a debt owed. God gave you life, and he demands that you use that life for the same purpose, he's working to manifest all of his glorious perfections. And you've chosen to use that life to manifest your own glorious perfections, or so-called glorious perfections. And so what do you now owe him because of sin? You owe him to give him that life back and allow him to use all of eternity to show his justice, to display himself rightly. That's why Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul who sins shall die. Because of your sin, you owe God a life. He must execute justice. He must vindicate himself. He can't let all of eternity go with somebody, perhaps far out in the myriads of angels, there's one who says, you know, I'm wondering about this justice deal. There won't be one. He must manifest his justice you're guilty of robbing him of his justice, and so something must be done. Here comes the essence of forgiveness. In the act of forgiveness, 
God determines that he will lift off of you that guilt and debt that has been incurred by your iniquity, transgression, and sin. He says, I'm going to take it off of you. That debt being lifted off of you, removed from you, it can no longer rightly be counted against you. It's not on you anymore. As a matter of fact, it would be unjust for God to lift off that debt and then continue to hold it against you. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That act of lifting off the debt, that's forgiveness. The act whereby God removes the guilt of sin from a person so that it no longer can be counted against them. Now, this is not a part of forgiveness necessarily. This is another doctrine, but I want to at least get to the debt being absorbed. This is the good news, or, or the, the, the main gist of it. Again, this debt must be paid. I must have my mailbox. God's justice must be vindicated. Forgiveness, again, is not ignoring or overlooking sin. God is not turning a blind eye to your sin. It must be served. And so it's always important to recognize that your sins, when they were removed from you, they were laid upon Christ. And He stood as guilty of your sins. That's the picture of the first lamb on the Day of Atonement. The sin was confessed over its head, and that was a picture of all of the sins of the people being laid like a blanket over that lamb, and then it was taken out into the wilderness, carried away from the people. Now, we would see that laying on of the sin onto Christ, that would be imputation, one of the parts of imputation. Imputation is dual. Our sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. So here's the picture. We're laying our sin over Christ. Our sin is imputed to Him. God treats Him as if He were guilty of our sins. In other words, God takes it upon Himself to pay the debt that you accrued. You backed over His mailbox. He's got to have a mailbox. So He says, I'll pay for it. Or more uh, to the point, you've sinned against Him. God must execute justice, but He says, let me take that off of you. Lay it on my Son. I'll pay the debt. The lifting off is forgiveness. Now, do we see this displayed in Scripture? I think we do. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I think this lays out the clearest case for what I've just explained. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, that is with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now notice the audience who's being addressed here. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Just like in Ephesians 2, we are all 
naturally dead in trespasses and in sins, spiritually lifeless, unable to self-resuscitate. This is all men. This is applied to the Colossians. This is applied to the Ephesians. This is applied to us in our natural state. In your natural state, you were dead. So what does God do? God made alive together with Him, that is, with Christ. You were dead. God acts. God makes you alive. He makes us alive with the resurrected Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. Because He came back from the dead, we too have been raised. We've been made alive together with Him. Paul here is describing the state of a Christian. This is what happened to you, Colossians, he's saying. This is what happened to you if you're a believer. He goes on to explain a part of the process of making us alive. Notice what he says. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. That trespasses, that would be synonymous with iniquity, transgression, sin. He's just summing all of that, that the idea of sin up in this word. Trespasses. God has removed, God has lifted off our trespasses from us. Now what happens as a result of that? If they're no longer on us, then notice what he says, by, so here's how God forgave us. He has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled the record of debt. If the, if the transgressions have been lifted off of you, and then he looks under there, there's no more trespasses. There's no, no more transgression. There's no record of debt there any longer because he's lifted it off. That which you owed for sins committed, God canceled. He determined in himself, I will not count that sinner guilty of their iniquities. I will not hold them against him. I will cover his sin. Notice in the next step, this he set aside. Same language of forgiveness. Remember, lift off, set aside, leave. This he set aside. That's the act of forgiving. He set aside, took it off, lifted it off, removed it from the sinner. And then we have one more how statement. How did he do that? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice it does not say this he set aside and kind of kicked it out of the way so that nobody would see it. This he set aside over in the, in the edge of the woods where nobody ever looks. He didn't simply forgive, cancel, and set aside. He does not overlook sin. He does not bypass sin. He does not just forgive it and that's it. Forgive it blank, set it aside blank. No, he set it aside, dot, 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 nailing it to the cross. That's the setting aside. He put it somewhere else, namely on his son. So we put, if we put all of the verbiage together in this, this sentence, or this verse, I'm going to chop out some words, but listen to how this works. You, God made alive, having forgiven, by canceling, He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He lifted your sins off of you, He put them on His dear Son. And his son, the Lord Jesus, then became the rightful inheritor of all of the guilt and debt owed to God for your sins. And seeing his son in that condition, he had him nailed to the cross. He crushed him. The act whereby God removes guilt, the guilt of sin from a person 
so that it may no longer be counted against them. That's forgiveness. Consider also from Scripture just a couple sort of sub-points of this doctrine. The scope of forgiveness. The confession uses the language iniquity, transgression, sin. There we have trespasses in Colossians 2. It's all, it's just summing up all kinds of sin. So we can assume all sins can be forgiven by God. They can be lifted off from men. Psalm 103, 2, into verse 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity. And Jesus says in all the Gospels, but Mark 3, 28, or the, or the synoptics, Truly I say to you, all sin will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, accepting only that willful rejection of the clear work of God unto death where a person does not seek forgiveness, Christ will forgive it all. Other than the unpardonable sin, if you're worried about having committed the unpardonable sin, you've not committed it. Other than that, he forgives all types of sin. That's the scope, all of them. You cannot commit a sin that God cannot forgive. Scriptures also give us some information about the expanse that is covered in this forgiveness in Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Takes them off. He lifts them. And he does so, the point is, for good. He doesn't put them in a place and store them up so that later he can bring them back out and, and rub them in your face. He's removed it so far, as far away as it could possibly be removed. The east is from the west. They're, they're opposites. You can't get any further away. That's where he, he takes our sin. So then how can we apply this doctrine? Well, first... I believe we should begin by praising Christ for the work of forgiveness. Worship Him and praise Him. Adore Him. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In Him we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Forgiveness is given to us in Christ according to the riches of God's grace. That is, out of the abundant overflow of God's grace. A percentage of according to the, the riches of it, that grace comes to us and God determines, I will lift off the sins from rebel sinners and I will lay them on my son. Out of that, riches, those riches. And out of abundant love for his bride, Christ volunteers to take those sins upon himself and carry them into the torrent of his father's wrath. He says, I'll do it. You take them off, you put them on me, I'll do it. Forgiveness is not possible without a worthy recipient of our sins. I'm not strong enough to bear even my sins, let alone yours or anybody else's. There must be a worthy recipient. Forgiveness is not possible without a volunteer. If God has to force someone to bear this weight, then it's not forgiveness. It's, it's not atonement. Forgiveness is not possible without a barrel-chested Savior who can't strap on all of our sins and then carry them outside the camp. Without Christ, there is no forgiveness. So, when you think about forgiveness, 
Does this not lift your heart? Don't thank me. Thank him. He did it. I'm just telling you about it. Run to him even now and thank him. Hey, and, and pray and say, forgive me for not thanking you enough. He will. He will do it. He is a forgiving God, a forgiving Savior. He's already, he's already bore that outside the camp. So worship him for this. Secondly, forgive others. Forgive others. Colossians 3.13, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So everything I just described for you, use that as a template for your own forgiveness. Of course, not making atonement or reparations for sins to God, but as, as you forgive people. Don't tell people, oh, don't worry about it, and then go home and stew about it and harbor bitterness towards them. That's not forgiveness. You didn't forgive them. They might not know it. They might think they've been forgiven, but you know you've not forgiven them if there's still bitterness. Don't say, hey, I've forgiven you, and here's what you need to do to make it up to me. That's not forgiveness. In a church like this, we have great opportunities to sin against one another, which makes great opportunities to forgive one another. So take them and use them. The latter, not the former. Also, would it be any comfort to you if you had been forgiven, but you didn't know it? If there was no evidence, no revelation from God that you had been forgiven, and God just sat in the heavens and said, well, I've forgiven them, but they don't know it. You wouldn't take any comfort from that, okay? So use that as a template for your own forgiveness. If you're seeking forgiveness, go seek it. You're going to be comforted when you get it. You need to know that you've got it. If you have forgiven somebody else, go tell them you've forgiven them. Let them be comforted by that forgiveness. And that, again, when we do that, between one another, that doesn't echo to our glory because we got the template from Him. We show forgiveness because we've been shown forgiveness. And so even that is just worship to God. When we forgive others and others forgive us and we allow that open exchange of forgiveness, that is worship to God. God receives the glory for that. So forgive others. It's an act of worship and it's commanded. Praise Christ. Forgive others. Thirdly, pray for the forgiveness of others. Pray for the forgiveness of others. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Acts 7, 59 to 60, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Our Lord forgave his murderers. Stephen apparently thought it was um, worthy of imitation. He does the same. He adopts the same posture towards his murderers. So then should we not, even when we have been sinned against, develop such an attitude of heart and love for the souls of men that we are compelled to pray that God would forgive them. 
Can we not forget our own egos long enough to pray for the good of the souls of others? Maybe, maybe they sinned against you, and you've forgiven them, and you've went to them, and everything's right here. Should there not be a burning in your heart that even God would forgive them of their sin, that God would want to forgive them? This, 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 that's love. Can you even imagine what love has to abide in the heart of a person to look into the eyes of their murderers as they hurl stones at them to kill them and to say, God, don't hold it against them. Forgive them for this. Pray that their actions are forgiven. See, only Christ can give that kind of love, and that's what we should seek. We should be able to pray if the time ever comes where we actually suffer real persecution, we should be able to pray, God, don't hold it against them. They don't know any better. They're ignorant. They're foolish. They're blind. They're dark. They're dead. They don't know. Father, forgive them. If I'm to be martyred into your presence, Father, maybe I'll meet them there someday. What, what a great joy it would be to know that, that my, my death would result in their salvation. Could we pray that? I think we should be able to. And then fourthly, and this is the last one, examine your heart to see if you have been forgiven. Examine your heart to see if you have been forgiven. Our Lord taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we seek forgiveness, having already forgiven others. In the postscript to the Lord's Prayer, He says, for if... You forgive others their trespasses. Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, he's not here setting up conditions that you have to meet in order to receive the forgiveness from God. He's describing the attitude of a true believer versus that of a false convert. So here's how you examine your heart. We all like to think we've been forgiven. And... Um, I would imagine just about anybody you could find and ask within a five-mile radius, have you been forgiven of your sins? Oh, yeah, I've been forgiven. Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven. Here's how you examine your heart to see if you have truly received forgiveness. Are there any people in your life who've sinned against you, no matter vi how vile it might have been, and in your heart you refuse to release them of any hard feelings... Remove from them any un unspoken expectation to make up to you what they've done. Is there anybody like that? You can think, they've sinned against me. They've done something. They don't know it, but, but I know. I'm holding it against them. I'm not let, I've not let it go. And when I bring it up, if someone else brings it up, you say, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to forgive them. If such a circumstance exists and you still even now refuse to lift off from them any spoken or unspoken requirements that you've established that they have to meet in order to to make up their debt to you then you have no reason to believe you've experienced forgiveness none whatsoever because if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will forgive yours but if you won't he don't he won't it's evidence. This is what comes out of the heart. Have you forgiven others? So examine your heart. If you're honest, if we are honest with the extent of these ideas of iniquity and transgression and sin, you'll see 
you've already been forgiven far more than any other human being could ever require from you already, already. And because we've been forgiven, we then forgive others. I'll close with this text again. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Well, let's stand and uh, I'll pray and then we'll sing one more song before we close. Father, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. We'll never deserve it. We praise you and worship you that you forgive, not based on anything you see in us, but because of your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. Lord Jesus, we praise you and worship you that you would step forward and volunteer to take our sins upon yourself, carry them outside the camp, and suffer that reproach so that we could be released from our sin debt. Lord, teach us these things. Teach us to meditate on your forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.